This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. We're off to a festival! But before you worry about where your tent and your wellies are, it's the Festival of Genomics, held at a clean and dry conference centre in London, rather than a muddy field full of rock bands and dodgy burgers. I think where we'll be in in five years' time is that we will have a lot more. We will be using whole genome sequencing probably routinely for uh, germline testing for rare disease, because I think that just makes sense to do it that way. Plus, what does the public really think of genetic technology and a fiery gene of the month? This is the Naked Genetics podcast for March 2018 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. At the end of January, I headed down to the Excel Conference Centre in London's Docklands to attend the Festival of Genomics, two days of talks, panels and other activities organised by Frontline Genomics, bringing together doctors, researchers, companies and the public to explore the latest in the UK's fast-growing genetic technology sector. It was just like Glastonbury, but without the mud, cows or Radiohead. First up on the main stage was a panel discussion asking whether we will fully integrate genomics into the NHS within five years. One of the key parts of this challenge is the UK's 100,000 Genomes Project, run by Genomics England, which was launched by the Department of Health five years ago with the aim of doing what it says on the tin, sequencing 100,000 genomes from 70,000 people with cancer and rare diseases. So far, they are halfway there, with 50,000 whole genome sequences in the bag. But What are they looking for? And what are they doing with the information? I chased down one of the panellists, Mike Hubank, who runs the Clinical Genomics Lab at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London, to find out. And just like Glastonbury, as this and all the other interviews were recorded live at the festival, I'm afraid there is a bit of background noise to contend with. We need to distinguish between whole genome sequencing for rare diseases and whole genome sequencing for cancer. Focusing on my area in particular, which is cancer, the reason we want to do that is the cancer genome is different from the human genome, from the genome from which it's derived. Um, we already know one or two variants which are actionable in terms of changing treatment, modifying treatment, and we can look for those individually and directly, of course. But what you get from whole genome sequencing, all the stuff we don't ordinarily see. If you're only ever going to do the same test for the same samples each time, you're only ever going to end up with the same treatment. By doing this in the way that we're doing now, which is collecting that information, abstracting out the things that we can action and actually using them and acting on them, but then we have the rest of that information which should carry on being research data from which we can then hopefully put together lots of um, new research to, to identify new tests, new combinations of therapies. And in terms of rare diseases, why should we do whole genome analysis there? So in rare disease, in the case of rare disease, it's a lot stronger to do whole genome sequencing, I think, because quite often uh, we're, we're, we're discovering we're discovering variants. So uh, there is something like in the region, I think, five to 7,000 known or likely uh, Mendelian disorders out there. Uh, it's impossible to try and second-guess often uh, which, gene, which gene might be responsible in each case. And now it's quicker and, quite honestly, cheaper and more effective to look at the whole genome at the same time. We can, we can find out the variants that we want and then we can decide uh, what those are. 
If you look at everything, you've got a good chance of finding what you're looking for. And here in the UK, we've had the 100,000 Genomes Project, which is looking at genomes in cancer and rare diseases, so both of them. How far have we got through this? What's the kind of the latest? OK, so the latest is we're approximately halfway through that project. There's been about 45,000 uh, genome sequenced so far. The results have been extremely good for the, um, for the rare disease cohort and uh, the, the, the cancer is going a little bit slower. Uh, remember, with cancer, you have to sequence two genomes. You have to sequence the, the genome from the cancer and the, sequence from the, the genome from the person that has the cancer. And that's proving a little bit trickier, getting the samples that we want. We can't just sequence some blood. We have to sequence some awkward biopsies. Having said that, we're, we're, we're making good progress on that now, using fresh material where that's available, and we're finding actionable findings on those. So there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a way to go on cancer, and there's still some, some, some arguments to be made for, whether, for how, how justifiable that will be in the long run. But, but, the, but the germline testing for rare diseases going very well. In terms of cancer, we do hear all this talk about personalised medicine. You find the faulty genes that drive the cancer, you treat them. Are we getting close to being able to do this on a timescale that's meaningful? Because I know some of these amazing studies in the past have said, yes, look, we found the genes, but unfortunately the patient had passed away by the time that data was there. That's a crucial difference between cancer and rare, unusual rare diseases. We've usually got to turn these things around. I mean, I, I run a clinical genetics lab. We've got to turn these things around in two weeks. So if you don't get that data back to the clinician within two weeks, that, that, that data is no longer usable. Who knows? You know, the patient needs to go on that treatment immediately. Um, so the way we're, adopt, we're approaching that is to try and to take a, a kind of a tiered approach. So there are, there are uh, mutations which we already know mandate a particular pathway for treatment. We look for those. We can look for those, those genes as fast as possible. Anything that, that doesn't fit into that scale then becomes research data which we can work on downstream. So we have pipelines in place, particularly for panel testing, where we might be testing between five and you know, 150 genes, where we can turn that around very, very quick. For whole genome sequencing at the moment, going to uh, Genomics England, that's not yet possible. There's, the turnaround is slower. And also there's a, requ a requirement for validation of those tests when they come back. Tests in my lab are already validated when they come off the panel. But in order to know what's on the panel, of course, it's great to know to have all that whole genome sequence data down there. What's the long game here? We've just seen a panel where people are discussing, yeah, in five years, could this be in the NHS? Yeah. For rare diseases, for cancer, for all this kind of genetic data, where are we heading and are we going to get there? <laughs> well, we're already there. So we, we have quite a lot of genomic testing already in the NHS. In my lab in particular, we have genomic tests uh, for multi-panel testing for breast cancer, for gastrointestinal cancer, uh, for paediatric cancer. I think where we'll be in, in five years' time is that we will have a lot more focus panels, I think, for, for cancers. We will be using whole genome sequencing probably routinely for uh, germline testing for rare disease because I think that just it makes sense to do it that way. Further down the line, I think we'll have to make the economic cost-effective case for which is exactly the best method to use in which case for which patient, whether it's a cancer patient or whether it's a, another kind of patient. Mike Hubank from the Royal Marston Hospital. Genomic technology is promising to revolutionise healthcare and projects like the 100,000 Genomes are sending us on the way. As the cost of sequencing falls, the excitement rises, so surely it's getting cheaper all the time. Alas, it's not quite that simple, according to Gurdeep Sagu, a lecturer in health economics at the University of Leeds, who spoke at the Festival of Genomics as part of a fascinating panel discussion asking whether clinical genomics is financially sustainable. We can't forget that the price tag needs to cover more than just the DNA sequencing itself. Sending it for the actual tests and actually getting that result back involves quite a bit more than the actual biochemistry and the wet lab aspect. 
So there are some estimates that maybe that accounts for about 30% of the actual cost. Um, so what we need to do is we need to start to factor in things like the administrative booking in of tests, of shipping tests, of, of receiving tests and rebooking those in, the transport costs. Sequencing needs to be manipulated and, and reformatted and interpreted um, so that we've got the actual, this is the whole genome sequence. And then that needs a clinical interpretation as well. So then, you know, you have highly skilled clinical scientists and bioinformaticians that then analyse that. That then goes back to a clinical geneticist um, who then interprets that as well. I mean, they don't go through all um, thousands of uh, uh, variants that are identified. Maybe they uh, pick out a handful and see, marry that back to the clinical question that was asked in the first place. But then also you need to then think about what happens after we get that result. How does that impact on, on clinical treatment and what are the costs associated with that? And also, what are the costs associated with getting that decision right or wrong? So when we talk about, you know, a $1,000 genome or a $100 genome, that's not actually the cost. <laughs> no, that tends to refer just to the sequencing aspect as well. And then you sort of treble All the that. bells and whistles. Yeah, you treble that with the analysis costs. It's quite a bit more expensive when you actually get a, a result that is interpretable. When we're thinking about healthcare, I know that there's this phrase, the quality, the quality-adjusted life year, that we use when we're thinking about stuff like very expensive cancer drugs. You know, is it worth giving people these very expensive treatments or surgeries for the amount of healthy life that they'll get from it? Can we put a quality on genetic sequencing? Um, so on sequencing itself, no, but the idea is that you would put the quality onto the clinical outcome that you get from that test result and the treatment that is then put in place. Um, so that's where you could get the quality uh, adjusted life year. So you would look at trying to quantify the improvement in, in ideally the length of life because of the treatment but also against the quality of that life and then you would offset that against the cost of doing the test versus not doing the test. So say you look at someone's genome and it says they have this and that genetic variation and actually, oh, they might benefit from this particular drug or this particular treatment and this benefit and that will give them 5, 10, even 20, 30 years of much healthier life. That's really hard to put a figure on. Uh, yes, it is, yeah, and that's what keeps us up at night, I suppose, as health economists, is trying to quantify that. And we have to model that as well. And when you're modelling things, you, you, you have to make certain assumptions. And so some of the, the limitations uh, or the criticisms, if you like, are around those assumptions and how realistic they are. Um, but also, um, yeah, it is, it is difficult. And you're making decisions, but you're trying to quantify the uncertainty around that decision as well. We're talking about here the UK NHS, which has a limited pot of money. It's still a big pot of money, but it is a limited pot of money. And we have to decide, do we want to spend it on this or do we want to spend it on that? Do we want to spend it on all this exciting genomic medicine and gene analysis and all that kind of stuff? Or do we want to spend it on mental health services or prevention and, and things like that? You know, Does it seem like genetics and genomics is worth it or how, how do we balance this exciting new technology with the stuff that we really need to do anyway yeah i think i think that's an important question what we need to do is we need to make sure that we are being fair with our resources so we are essentially spending them in a way that gives us the biggest return on our investment so we get the most amount of health that we can for that expenditure 
on whether that's on hip surgeries, whether it's on or spending more on mental health, whether it's on investing in genomics in a limited capacity, we need to try and articulate that a lot more and try and quantify that so that we are making decisions on as robust an evidence base as we can. I mean, the, the shiny, shiny, it's quite nice to spend money on genetics and all the, the cool stuff. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's like you know having a having the latest iPhone. Um, you've got to make that decision. You know, I've got the current iPhone. Do I want to spend another thousand pounds now? What additional benefit does it give me? We've talked about a UK national health service where it's sort of nationalised for everyone. Are there different economic issues when you start thinking about an insurance-based model as we have in the States? So sometimes the incentives changed. Um, so one of the well-documented um, problems with the American healthcare has always been around supplier-induced demand. So the doctor, because they know that they are able to get reimbursed for very various expensive tests and that their income may depend on that, they are then put in the position where they can actually start to game the system, if you like, and unnecessarily order expensive tests. Um, that's not a problem that we have per se in this country. So at the moment, you know, 99% of the, the healthcare is uh, funded through taxation, but we do have fees as well. So we pay prescription charges, although it's at a discounted rate. We do pay those fees. Um, going to the dentist, going to the optician, we pay fees. And I think we need to maybe have a debate as to, you know, are we happy to pay additional fees for other services and, and what it is that our NHS should be providing to everyone and what it should be providing perhaps on a fee basis? Well, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, you pay an extra 100 quid to have your genome done on the NHS and it's there and it's there for your healthcare. Yeah, and then that, that brings other challenges with it. So, it, it, you know, one of the big things, uh, one of the really good things about our NHS is it's is geared up towards reducing inequality. Now, it's debatable how, to what extent that, that is met because we see postcode lottery. Um, we, we appreciate that it is an issue and would bringing in a, a fee-for-service for some um, treatments or some tests could potentially make that inequality worse. And in a related issue, we see things like cancer drugs that are genetically targeted, you know, they're designed to hit the sort of faulty genes and molecules in cancer cells. We see gene therapies for very rare diseases that are eye-wateringly expensive and there's a big debate about the costs of those. This is all sort of tied up in genetic technology and it almost feels like just because we can, you know, we've done this research, we've got this treatment, at what point do we decide is something really worth the money? Yeah, so that's, again, that's a really good point. Some of the rare diseases, um, because they are rare, the incentive is not there for the pharmaceutical companies to produce treatments uh, for, for those patients because the market is tiny. So, again, we have to have different incentive mechanisms in place to encourage drug development for rare diseases. And that you know, it, it, it will mean that those drugs are expensive. But there is the argument that you, know, you, you, you can't necessarily be blamed for the hand that you're dealt. Uh, if, it, if you're predisposed to a genetic condition or a rare genetic condition, should you be unfairly um, stigmatised for that and, and not receive treatment? I mean, I guess the, the dream that we're all working towards is affordable treatments that work and are as available to as many people as need them. Yeah, so that's like personalised medicine. The holy grail, really, is, um, is around having the individual in front of you, giving them the right tools, but then providing them with the, the right decision and the right treatment at the right time and, and doing that every time. And that treatment isn't necessarily around a disease process. It may be just to pre, you know, extend their healthy life as well. And it's all got to be in a budget. 
Yes, uh, and, and <laughs> that, that NHS healthcare budget is, is, is never going to be big enough. Gurdip Sagu from the University of Leeds. This month, the Royal Society released the results of a study uncovering public opinions about technologies such as genomics and DNA sequencing, gene editing and gene therapy. A survey of more than 20,000 people and detailed workshops showed cautious optimism for tools to improve human health, tackle the impacts of climate change and reduce inequality. But other uses of genetic technology were less popular, such as attempts to manipulate eye colour or intelligence. So what's hot and what's not in the public's view of genetics? I went to the Francis Crick Institute in London to meet Professor Robin Lovell-Badge, chair of the Royal Society's Genetic Technologies Programme, to find out why the Society commissioned the report and what they learned from it. So in terms of DNA sequencing, so of course the cost of doing it is really quite minimal. There are all these very large genome sequencing projects, which would include the 100,000 Genomes Project and and Biobank and all, all these other things in this country and others around the world. People are being bombarded with adverts in the tube, even on, um, you know, for hereditary purposes, all trying to understand whether you're going to suffer from something. Then you've got all the talk about um, modifying DNA, whether that's through traditional methods of you know, genetic manipulation of, of plants and animals, but particularly through the, the use of genome editing methods, things like CRISPR-Cas9. Um, as a very efficient way of doing it. Can you sort of summarise what the general vibe that you're getting from the public? So they were supportive, optimistic of the potential uses. It was qualified or conditional on there being appropriate regulation. They didn't want certain things happening. They weren't keen on uh, changes being made, either either trivial or cosmetic uh, certainly with respect to humans, they didn't like the idea of enhancements and things. But for, for treating or avoiding disease, they were very, very positive. For plants and animals, they were also, on the whole, positive. Well, more so with plants and animals, on the whole, positive. If changes were being made in genes for the purposes of, of for example, disease resistance, um, if there was an, an aspect that could be done that would contribute to human health and welfare they were also very keen on that so that was a big chain big step forward from the the fear of so-called frankenfoods and things and in fact several of the participants made comments were saying well i didn't know all this was possible i've just been scared by the headlines about you know the horrible things that scientists are doing and creating monsters or they thought genetic manipulation was a bad thing but having gone through all of this got the information they were very positive in the end that the, the use, potential uses were really good and actually quite amazing what could be done. Why is it important to ask the public anyway? Can't we just like do our own scientific thing, just get on with it without this kind of pesky public and their pesky opinions? <laughs> um, no, I, dis- I disagree that the, the public are pesky or their opinions are pesky. In fact, I think their, their opinions are very valuable. So I was involved in in the public dialogue for mitochondrial replacement. And that was really important. We got some good ideas from them how how it should be regulated. And actually, you do. You don't necessarily predict what you're going to get from the public. Um, but they were very good ideas. And I think, likewise, here, we're getting some good ideas. So it's useful. It's important to have the public behind if you are really wanting to make a, a, a change in, in application, how you apply science, to have the public behind that. The regulators, the government, 
again also needs um, to know that this is something that they will they will be support for. If you just sort of don't ask the public, then you're stuck with these sort of old beliefs which are propagated by people who are very opposed. So you get people who are really opposed to genetically modified crops. The same is true of the public don't seem to really distinguish much between between heritable genome editing, germline editing, and somatic genome editing. But that whole idea that there would be a big difference is propagated again by people who are opposed very much to any type of research using embryos. Ethicists, for whatever reason, make this strong divide there, but it's actually not made by the public. So I think it's very important that regulators, politicians, etc., really understand that the public, what the public really care about, and the public really care about doing good, preventing disease, dealing with issues that affect us all, like climate change, shortage of food, um, diseases and things. So that's what the public care about. So asking the public is really important. Fellow of the Royal Society Robin Lovell-Badge from the Francis Crick Institute in London. And a link to that report is on the Naked Genetics podcast page. That's nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Katani, and this month we're taking a trip to the Festival of Genomics. Coming up later, a fire-breathing gene of the month. But first, it's all very well to talk excitedly of genome sequencing and targeted therapies. But who gets access to this technology, particularly if it comes with a high price tag? One of the speakers at the Festival of Genomics, Professor David Smith from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, raised the issue of democratising genomics, making sure that everyone gets fair access to this potentially life-changing new area of medicine. So what does this look like? And are we there yet? Well, just access to medicine itself is very undemocratic. And you see across the United States, certainly, that the wealthier people have much more access to much better medicine than poorer people. So automatically, you have a division. Genetics and genomics has actually made it worse, not better. Is that because of the costs of having your your genome done or having your your disease analysed at a genetic level? Well, you have to get into the issue and the problem. What's the problem with medicine and why is medicine so ridiculously expensive? And why is it the United States with, you know, with its economy and where it is, why don't we have some sort of sensible form of universal medicine? Now, within the context of genetics and genomics, Uh, There's two problems. One is the overall issue about education and people that are aware of it. And two is, is it still too expensive? I could actually make an argument that we're going to reach a point where whole genome sequencing is going to be cheaper than any other test that you can do. And that's why I'm pushing very strongly that whole genome sequencing should be the clinical test. Speaking of someone who's from the UK when we have the NHS and we're talking about the 100,000 Genomes Project and anyone can be in it, anyone can be part of it. If you are entitled to NHS care, you get NHS care. More broadly in terms of genomics and the kinds of studies that are being done, is there an issue with the kinds of people that are being involved in genetic studies? Well, I think there's a lot of concern that people have about what is the the genetic information that you get, what are they going to do with it? Is this going to penalize me? Okay, and I think that a lot of people, and this across the board, not just wealthy people or white people, do have some concern. I think if I was poor, 
uh, and disadvantage, I would probably be very prejudiced against that whole concept because I'd see this as another way that society wants to marginalize and penalize me. So we actually are going to need to educate people, and yet at the same time we're going to have to rein in our insurance companies because they're, they're the enemies. The, I hate to say it as much the pharmaceutical companies as well. If till with this at profit motive, which rules everything, is is reined in, I think we have a serious problem. We need to understand that the purpose of healthcare is for the health of the people. It's not so that for profits can continue to make money. In terms of that education, helping people to understand what is a genome, what's in their genome, what do people want to find out about it, how will it help them? What do we need to do? What needs to change? We have to start in at the earliest education levels. I, I really do think that fundamental concepts that are taught in school need to be certain things like the earth is round, gravity is real, evolution is real, genomics is real. And it has to be taught at that level. There's going to be a lot of pushback because right now there's a lot of places in the U.S. and in the world where they do refuse to teach evolution because it just violates basic religious principles. And yet... All of these things are linked to each other, that we use scientific reason and scientific fact to come to conclusions, and that we use, based on those conclusions, we move forward. What do they teach us? They teach us that we're a family, that we all work together, that racism, sexism is stupidity. So we need to go back to the very beginning. What do you do with older people? Let them die. Hopefully, hopefully no. I think I think that's a bit harsh. I mean, I I have devoted my life to writing about genetics, going to pubs, giving talks to groups about it, uh, all that kind of thing. You know, I, I don't quite want people to die yet. But I'm not saying die out in the you know die out with a genetically engineered strain that kills stupid people. I'm not going that far. But I am saying that you have to have an understanding that yes, you try to educate people. That's why you start with the youngest age people. You try to teach them progressive things. You try to educate throughout but the the reality is that conservatism is dying just because people the younger generation is coming along that is much more understanding and forgiving I mean, it is understandable with the pace of change. So obviously the structure of DNA discovered in the 1950s, the advent yeah. of sequencing in the 70s, PCR in the 80s, now whole genome sequencing. Just to stay on top of that technology and, and how it's changing, that's, that's a big ask for anyone who's kind of just going along with their own life and not a specialist in biology. I don't know if that's necessarily true. The reality is that you can teach basic concepts about DNA, about evolution at the earliest level. My wife is a first grade school teacher. And she's teaching kids to read, but there's simple basic concepts that you can learn at that level. Again, you don't have to teach it at the complexity of a graduate student level to make people aware. Look at yourself, look at your parents. You actually came from your parents. But, I mean, simple concepts like that can be brought across without getting into tremendous complexity. When you see something like a show like Sesame Street, which was a groundbreaking show of how to educate children about some simple basic concepts, these things can be done. Some of these wonderful education channels, we just need to have more of it. More Sesame Street for science. Yes, absolutely. And what is your hope for the future? Where would you really like to see, in the best possible world, this technology, this public understanding, the will to make a difference? Where would you like us to end up? I'd like it to be something simple. I'd like everyone to understand the family of man. Understand that if you look back in your DNA, we all came out of Africa. There is no 
white is superior gene, that type of stupidity. So when a, when a racist does a 23andMe test and discovers they have 5% black DNA and blows their mind, that is the best cure for that type of stupidity. I would like something as simple as that. A lot of the genetic studies that have done have tended to involve sort of white populations, countries in, in the West, developed countries. What are we missing by not expanding genetic research to cover more populations? We're only looking at a very narrowed, skewed percent of the population. One of the nice things about any of the countries that has diversity is the strength of that diversity. So if we can just reach across, we're going to have to start doing these things in more, getting back to the origin of man in more of the African countries where all the genetic diversity is. There's greater diversity in Africa than in any other place. We need to go to other cultures as well. We need to go to the Eskimos. We need to go to the Intuits. We need to go to the, the Native American Indians, the Native Australians. We need to go across. The democratization of, of genomics is at the point where whole genome sequencing is less than $100 per person. At that point, that it will begin, and I think we're going to start to see more people, but we're actually going to have to skew and try to make an effort, because otherwise we're going to have 95 representation from white men. Pale, male and stale indeed. That's David Smith from the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. If you've been paying any attention to technology news lately, you've probably heard of something called a blockchain. As I understand it, it's a giant spreadsheet that's distributed in many places in the cloud and remembers every edit you ever make. Eager companies are proposing blockchains as the solution to all kinds of problems, from banking and legal transactions to shopping and food safety. So it was only a matter of time before someone came up with the idea of applying blockchain technology to genomic data, as I found out when I spoke to David Kepsel, CEO of the company Encryption at the Festival of Genomics. According to David, this could provide a solution to some of the privacy and access issues that concern people when it comes to maintaining control over our own genetic data. There's no way for you, for instance, as an individual, uh, or anyone really, to claim ownership of genetic data. And now there's a question of how do I, as an individual, or how does a lab then take some sort of dominion or control and be able to buy and sell the data and, and make sure that it's being used in a way that they know. This seems like a, a difficult thing of how do you then keep control of something that's, that's biological, that's you? That's a real good question. It's out there in nature and you can't patent it. So what you can do is you can create a system of bookkeeping, okay? Systems of bookkeeping, uh, ledgers are essentially what blockchains are. And blockchains, you know, from things like Bitcoin. Okay, let, let's unwind a little bit. Yeah. because uh, So a ledger is, is basically it's an accounting thing. Yeah. You have some lines and boxes and you write down, like, you know, date, I have three cows and it costs this much money or something like that. How does that translate to a blockchain? That is how we keep track of all our money. You and me and every bank that exists keeps track of what you own. Um, governments keep track of what you own by titles which are ledgers of a sort that are authorized. Um, banks do the same thing. They keep systems of accounting, the flow of goods and value from one place to another. And that defines the extent of your ability to, to own almost anything. So blockchain is a way to disintermediate that value-keeping ledger and spread it out among a number of different people, make sure that it cannot be hacked or altered uh, without permission from the whole network. And then you can sort of create a new way of tracking value. And for something like genomic data, a blockchain 
can be used to track the transactions of that data uh, among individuals, labs, governments, and also to get paid for its use. Say I have my genetic data, I've had my genome sequence read, or I've had something like a 23andMe analysis that's looking at little snapshots, snips through my genome. That's my data, belongs to me. What would I do with it? How would I, like, put it into the blockchain? How do I control it? Uh, Our company has created a portal for you to be able to do that. It's called the My Gene Chain, and for free, anybody can upload their data. We keep it safe and secure. Uh, we blockchain the metadata if you want to be used for scientific studies. What's, so what's the metadata and how is that different from sort of the ACs, T's and G's of my actual genome? If you did a 23andMe test, for instance, you went on and did a health survey. And that creates the metadata that is used by scientists to buy and sell that data, uh, as in fact they do. But in that case, you're not involved in that uh, transaction, other than saying you wish to be used in scientific studies. In our case, you are the controller of that data through a private key, just like you control your Bitcoin through a private key. Or control my actual money through saying, you know, here you can have some of my money or not have some of my money. Right. I mean, when you send a transaction through a bank, you're doing a sort of cryptographic exchange of value from one place to another as well. So we've got genetic information or this genetic metadata in a blockchain, which as far as I can see is basically a spreadsheet. Uh, (laughs) What sort of transactions might people want to do with it? Well, a simple one would be, let's say you did a whole genome sequencing when it's cheaper or you're rich and you want to store that data and use it with your doctor um, for your care or a genetic counselor. You may want to keep it somewhere safe. You don't have to carry a USB drive around with you at the risk it's going to get found by somebody and you know, you've lost control of it. Instead, you put it on a blockchain. You give another private key uh, to your doctor or genetic counselor so they can access it. And you can revoke that key when they're done using it for your treatment. That's one use case. Another is you're interested in helping science and maybe even getting some value for it. Uh, so you reveal your metadata to the blockchain and allow anybody who has access to that blockchain to search for it and to buy from you that data using a cryptocurrency like our own, which is called DNA. That seems a little bit mercenary. It's like, I've got a really interesting genome. Who wants a piece? You've got to pay for it. Well, you know, that's what's happening now with a lot of these commercial testing companies. The real value for them is not in having you buy the kits. It's in the data they collect, and this is their business plan, actually. Why shouldn't we revert the, the business back to the individual? And this does address a lot of the issues about privacy, about ownership, then. If I've got my DNA, my genome, and I can say, all right, you can use it for this. Doctor, you can use it for free. Maybe a nice academic research project. Maybe you can look at it for free or a charity project. Mm-hmm. But big company that wants it to develop a drug, you've got to pay. Yeah, sure. You, you get to charge as you want. So that's the beauty of free markets. Does it need a critical mass of people to do this? Because there's all sorts of people sort of going, something, 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 blockchain thing, trendy thing. Do you need a critical mass of people to be involved in this? We don't think it will. Uh, We think over time, genomic blockchains are going to grow. So one of the things we're doing is we started the Genomic Blockchain Consortium. We're going to work with anybody who comes into the space because if if one of us disappears at some point, right, if there's no critical mass to generate revenue, then the customers who are putting their data up there ought to be protected. Uh, So a couple of companies have already joined that consortium, and we're hoping others do, recognizing that the the long term, 
some sort of genomic blockchain is going to exist and people are going to need to use it. The data shouldn't be lost, like Betamax, it shouldn't be lost because Betamax goes out of style. And what about all the genetic data that's already out there, all the genomic sequences that have been gathered through studies that presumably they all link back to a person, but that person doesn't have that data or ownership of that data? That's up to people. If they want to participate in that sort of study, we think it's perfectly um, you know, within their rights. Uh, I think that issues of privacy uh, are going to become increasingly um, pressing uh, for people as questions about you know, em- employment or uh, other sorts of uh, prying into your genomic data become more prevalent. And we don't want that to impact badly on science. We want the science to get done. So we think this is the way to go. And is there a risk, though, that saying, well, you can make money for your genome, you can control who gets access to it, that that will stifle or hamstring the genomic research that's going on now? I don't think so. And and so my vision is that this becomes so commonplace and there's so much volume on the, you know, this growing blockchain that the price of the data, the individual data sets will continue to fall um, to near the levels of the, you know, the free projects. Uh, But people will be transacting it so much uh, because it's so useful in science and we're learning so much from it uh, that everybody sort of uh, gets lifted by this rising tide, including science. Would it be possible to steal someone's genetic data and upload it to the blockchain and then get like get their money for it? Uh, how do you guard against that? How do you know that this is my data, this is my genome, it belongs to me? That's a very good question. So this is the same problem uh, commercial testing companies have uh, when they receive a sample from somebody with just a signed consent form. They're trusting that, you know, it was you that spit in the cup or swabbed your cheek. Uh, but there's no way for them to verify it. Uh, this is a issue that's actually being solved in blockchains. So there are a number of blockchain companies out there that are working on blockchains specifically to verify identities. Uh, so we'll, we're keeping an eye on some of the more promising ones and probably will adopt you know, the best one. So the future is like a blockchain of a blockchain of your genes and a blockchain. The revolution will be blockchained. <laughs> David Kepsel from Encryption speaking to me at the Festival of Genomics, organised by Frontline Genomics. And finally, it's time for our Gene of the Month, and this time it's Smorg, named after the fearsome dragon in J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy novel The Hobbit. In the book, the fiery foe drives out the dwarves of Erebor from their caves under the Lonely Mountain. And then he sits there on a massive pile of gold until Bilbo Baggins and a bunch of other dwarves turn up and kill him. Just as Smorg the dragon inhibits the activities of the dwarves of Erebor, the fruit fly gene Smorg encodes a protein that inhibits the activity of another gene called Nanos, which is the Greek word for dwarf. It does this by binding to the message made when the Nanos gene is read, known as messenger RNA, and stops it from being translated into a protein, but only when the Nanos RNA is in the wrong place in a fruit fly embryo. If this interaction doesn't happen, then nanos is made where it's not needed, leading to stubby little maggots growing instead of elegant long ones. Smog is also found in mammals, and it's often located in small granules at the junctions or synapses between nerve cells, where it also stops messenger RNA being translated into proteins. It's not entirely clear what its role is, but smog and other proteins that control message translation are thought to be involved in memory formation. So maybe my smog proteins are helping me to remember the plot of The Hobbit. That's all for now. Next month, I'll be heading back to the scene of the crime, exploring the frontiers of forensic genetics. 
Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll be back next time for another peek inside your genes. <laughs>